great time to sing to the Lord and be reminded of, of truth that are found in the lyrics that I hope will be encouragement for us even today as we, uh, as we turn our attention to the subject of suffering and evil. And we are continually reminded that evil is part of this world. Uh, you don't have to look very hard or look very far to find evidence of evil. Um, even this last week, hearing about the, the brutal murder of, of uh, nine Americans that were just south of the U.S. border, women and children primarily, that, that were, they were brutally killed. And it was just, just a horrific uh, uh, scene that was there. And we hear uh, accounts like that, and they, they, they are reminders that we live in a world that is filled with evil. And we, we look around and, and we, we see pain and we see suffering. And so we, we come together not with a question on whether evil exists. We, we probably all agree that we see evil uh, around us and we know that it does. The questions that, that, that resonate for us are how do we respond to it? How do we, how do we look to God in light of it? Uh, are there reasons behind it that we can somehow grasp and understand when it all seems so senseless. And if we were to take time this morning and, and stand, we could, we could give all kinds of testimony today about whether we were, we're talking about suffering as it's related to, uh, uh, to evil person against person, or whether it's natural suffering that happens by, by living in this world. In fact, I'll be uh, spending some time this afternoon with, with a dear brother in our church that, that is... Uh, likely very soon going to be entering the presence of the Lord. And, and uh, you know, we have those, those, those people that, that we walk with and that we see and loved ones. And maybe you have some in, in your life that you're thinking of. And, and we realize that, that none of us are immune to the suffering of this world. And so today, I want us to, to begin a, a short two-week uh, time in thinking through some frameworks that come out of Scripture, some, some truth that we can look to. It's obviously a very big subject, but there are some, some, uh, some areas that I think can be helpful. Uh, as, we, as we look at, uh, at history and we look at, 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 at statements that are made, we know that there are many that try to reconcile. How can a good, loving, powerful God allow suffering and evil? Have you ever heard that before? You ever heard people say, why doesn't He prevent it? Why doesn't He stop it? Why, was it, why does it exist in the first place? And there's all kinds of reasons that, that are given, and we'll touch on some of them this week and next. But, uh, but we know that it's a question that, that, that comes from different angles. For some, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intellectual pursuit. It's, it's in, the, in the realm of, of philosophers, and we have a, a, apologists that come back and try to have these debates and dialogues. For others, it's people that are right in the midst of the pain, asking, where is the Lord in the midst of all of this? So today, we're going we're gonna to begin touching on some of it, and I hope that uh, there'll be some, some nuggets that we can grasp from the Word of God that will help us. The first point this morning is this, we are to reconcile the existence of God and evil, and uh, sometimes that is a challenge. There are questions that are raised and in fact, there is an ancient question raised in the 3rd century B.C. by a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus. And here's what he said. He said, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or He can, but He does not want to. You hear what he's saying? He says He, he, uh, uh, he cannot and does not want to. If He wants to but cannot, 
God is impotent. If he can but does not want to, God is wicked. And then he asks, but if, if God both can and wants to abolish evil, then why is evil in the world? So we, we hear questions like that. They're not new ones. And there may be some that, that you yourself have either heard or maybe even asked. It's a very practical subject as we seek to reconcile what we believe about God, what the Bible teaches about God, that yes, He is all-powerful, that He is all-loving, that He is all-knowing, and yet at the same time, we can see evil and suffering and pain all around. If we look back through history, we will be immediately confronted with the undeniable realities of sin and death and disease and injustice. In fact, I, I came across a picture that came from the days of the Holocaust. And, and if you've seen some of these, I mean, they're just, they're just, just really uh, gruesome reminders of the depravity of humanity. To, to see people treated uh, in, in such a manner, starved and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and ultimately uh, killed after all kinds of suffering uh, over race. We, we think of, of, uh, of that. We think of terrorist attacks that, that are seen throughout the world, including on our own soil when we consider 9-11. There's also the natural disasters. I've, I've got a overview shot of a hurricane here, but really we could put up a, a picture of, of a hurricane. You could think of tsunamis. You could think of, uh, of earthquakes, all kinds of, of natural disaster that is connected not only to suffering, but as we'll see this morning, it's connected to evil as well. It's part of creating uh, death and confusion in this world and, and heartache. Forest fires, we see those on the, uh, on the uh, uh, west coast of, of America. We, we, we know that there's all kinds of, of, of suffering in this world. George Barna, who runs a research group, was one time doing a survey and asking people, if you could ask God one question and know you'd get the answer, what question would you ask Him? You know at the top question, of all the questions that could be posed to God, this is the one that came up number one. Why is there so much suffering in the world? It's not a new question, as I said. It's one that's been there throughout the ages. But it's one that we wrestle with. And it's one that our children will wrestle with. And those that we speak to about Christ and the Gospel... If there's ever an objection, sometimes it goes right back to the question of suffering and evil. So it is a topic that's worthy of our pursuit. Even back in the book of Judges, chapter 6, Gideon was looking at his nation. And he was seeing that they were uh, about to, uh, to be under captivity uh, from another group of invaders. And he called out to the Lord in verse 13. He said, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Then he references the fact that earlier in their nation's history, they had, they had amazing things happen in the days of Moses, and they were released from bondage and slavery of the Egyptians. So he's recalling all of that. But in the moment, what's he saying? He's saying, why has all this happened? Can we take just a moment and can I ask you, have you ever verbalized that question? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to someone that I love? Why is this happening in the world? Why is this happening? Deep, deep questions. Not new ones, 
But I would just say as we begin that they are not just questions of an academic nature. They don't just belong in the, in the theological debate circles. Because for us, when we talk about suffering and we talk about evil, we're talking about where the rubber meets the road and where we are called to live, likely on a daily basis. Yes, it's a tough, tough subject. And I want to approach it this morning with great sensitivity. Because we don't know what each other are going through or have been through. Or what may be waiting for us. So we don't want to try. I don't certainly want to try to give just simple answers for really hard questions and subjects. And I realize that, that the, the problem of evil and the, the reality of suffering is one of those topics where there's in all likelihood more questions than there are answers. But even if there are more questions, does it mean that we should shy away from the topic? doesn't mean that we should just try to stay into those topics that are a little more neatly cookie-cut that we can come through with the, with the four or five points and we've got it all settled. Uh, we, know, we know that if we, if we only stay in those topics, we're not dealing with the ones that really hit us where we are living and where others are living. So I want to come with great sensitivity, knowing that each and every one of us have dealt with uh, experiences of pain, uh, heartache, difficulty, and uh, even on those occasions where we show up for church and on the outside, everything just looks great. We've got a smile on our face, but deep down inside, there may be something that's taken place that we really haven't even shared with someone else. Sometimes the, the struggles of life are like the iceberg, right? That you can see some of the iceberg above the surface, but there's a whole lot more underneath. And so, so I approach a topic like this with all of that in mind. But I also want to, 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 to say that that it is an opportunity for us to look to God's Word to see, does the Bible have anything to say about suffering and evil? And I think what we will see is that its pages are filled. It wasn't, it wasn't written and then, and then uh, left to allow us to be surprised by evil throughout, even from the beginning in the book of Genesis. We see the presence of evil. And we see this battle between good and evil. And, and we see the battle between righteousness and unrighteousness. We see the curse of sin. We see the, the curse that, that affects the whole creation and the aftermath of all of that. That's a reality that the Bible speaks of. And in fact, in the New Testament, Jesus says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when they persecute you. Peter tells us, don't be surprised that the trials will be suffering. So we, we want to come at this with a recognition that there is indeed a framework of suffering found in the Bible. But I want to tell you that there's a couple of ways that, can, that we can approach suffering. One way is to offer a defense of God. Try to offer a defense of his, of his mercy and of His strength in light of suffering. And that would be very much an apologetic type response. But then there's also that type of response where we walk alongside someone who is suffering. And they are hurting. And, and probably what they're not looking for is that great big apologetic defense. But instead they're probably looking for what? A reminder that God loves them that He knows where they're at, that, that He is, 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 is wanting to provide for them peace, that He's wanting to give them comfort, that He's wanting to give them guidance. So, so I don't want to approach the topic and say, let's look at all of the, the apologetic defenses and then take those in with us when we're making hospital visits, right? Because that, that is usually not appropriate. That's usually not what the person is needing at that moment. Usually when someone's in a time of suffering, they're dealing with the aftermath of pain. What they are needing is your presence, right? They just need 
to, to know that you care for them, that you're walking with them, that they're not alone, and that if, if it's appropriate to also help them see that God also knows where they are, that He wants to walk with them and be with them. So, so I want to be very careful as we approach the topic to not to give all of what uh, is coming uh, today and next week under the umbrella of this is like pastoral care ministry when we think about suffering and evil, because some of it wouldn't be. Some of it is going to be more just a framework for us to try to understand evil and suffering as it's described in the Bible. Sometimes if we have what is referenced as a theology of suffering, and we understand that the Bible is preparing us for suffering, when those days come, it's, it gives us a framework in which to try to understand it. Because, believe me, when we are in those times, we will be seeking understanding. And so to have the Word of God there and the truths that it contains are indeed very helpful. There are all kinds of questions that emerge. Why does God in the beginning even permit evil? Was evil a, a necessary aspect of Him giving free will? That's always a question that comes up. There are debates uh, uh, that, that show up on whether there are reasons why He allowed this or uh, if this was something that was out of His control. We'll touch a little bit on that in a moment. But to begin, I want to give a quote from Randy Alcorn because he says that, uh, that in, in his book, The Goodness for God, that oftentimes the church has not adequately prepared itself. We haven't prepared one another for the, uh, uh, the reality of suffering and evil. Here's what he said. Unfortunately, most churches have failed to teach people to think biblically about the realities of evil and suffering. A pastor's daughter told me, I was never taught the Christian life was going to be difficult. I've discovered it is, and I wasn't ready. Now next week, I'm going to share an account of a young lady growing up on the mission field who, who encountered all kinds of, of human suffering and how that even impacted whether or not she would be able to keep her focus on the Lord. And we're going to see, as I share that with you next week, that there, were, that there was a lot of doubt in her mind because she struggled being able to see the suffering in front of her and an understanding of who God is. Alcorn continues by saying, Our failure to teach a biblical theology of suffering leaves Christians unprepared for harsh realities. It also leaves our children vulnerable to, listen, history, philosophy, and global studies classes that raise the problems of evil and suffering while denying the Christian worldview. So we know those questions are there. We know they're going to be raised. We know that our students, our, our children, our grandchildren, they're going to be faced with that question. The question is, have we come alongside to help prepare them? To show them what Scripture says about the subject that can help us all in some way make some sense to what we're seeing around us. There is a framework that is sometimes raised among skeptics. It's uh, if you read many resources about suffering and evil, you'll find it pretty quickly. Sometimes it's referred to as the insoluble trilemma, and it makes three points. It says, number one, God is all-powerful. He can do anything He wills. Does the Bible teach that? Yes. Do we believe that? Yes. God is all-powerful. The second part, part of it is, is that God is all-loving, that He cares with an intense value for His creation. Does the Bible teach that? Absolutely. Do we believe that? Yes. But then there's the third part. 
evil is a reality. Suffering is, is a part of the world in which we live. We've, we've recognized that already. And so the, the trilemma is how do we explain evil in light of the first two points? And the way that the material, secular mind, when, that, when, that, when the materialistic worldview is, is put out there, they will take this, these three statements and say, because the Bible teaches one and two, and yet we see number three, obviously one and two can't be true. But that's where the Christian comes alongside and says, wait a minute. Just because someone has developed this framework that looks neat and clean doesn't mean that it's accurate. And it doesn't mean that, 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 that there's not more to ask about this. And to think, why is there suffering? If, if God is all-powerful and God has, has permitted it, does God have a reason for it? And so for the one that would, that would take this as an insoluble trilemma, they would, they would then have to assume that they have all the information about God and know all of his thinking and all of his reasons to be able to say, well, he has none. He has no reason, so therefore he must not exist. The Bible must not be true. And that's where we push back and say no. No, we look at this and say there are some answers. They may not, they may not uh, be one of the answers where we can say, turn to this verse in the Bible and it says, God permitted evil because of such and such and such and such. It may not be that easy. But there are themes that are there that help us to see. There could be reasons. There have to be reasons why. Just because we don't understand what all of them might be doesn't mean that God does not exist. Again, some have proposed uh, things such as an argument for free will and, and so forth. And so we'll look at some of those in the... Uh, in the, uh, in the, uh, this weekend also for next. But I want us to get back to think about the origin of evil because the Bible speaks of when evil came into this world and we have to start with that. So the second point this morning is to realize the origin of evil. And some would say, well, why didn't God create a world where there was no evil and suffering in the first place? And I think the answer to that is, if we go back to Genesis 1, he did. He didn't create a world that was suffering. He didn't create a world that was starving. He didn't create a world that was at odds with one another. There was a perfect world that was created. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. In the beginning, there was no evil, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no death. That's how it was initially created. Now we know that there was a rebellion in the heavenlies. And as we saw this last summer, we did a week where we were uh, studying uh, the miracles of Jesus. And we noted that Jesus had authority over demons. And we, we asked the question, you know, do demons exist? The answer, of course, is yes, they do. The Bible speaks of, 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 of the, the, the principalities of this world, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that there's a spiritual dimension there that includes evil. It includes uh, demons, and it includes an adversary. And so, so we know that that is the case, and it was the case that, that the deceiver was present there even in the beginning of Genesis. So we, we certainly recognize from the very beginning that this is, uh, part of the part of the answer. D.A. Carson says, from a Christian perspective, one of the things that you must have in place is that this is God's world, and when He made it, He made it good. 
And that all that is ugly and dark and repulsive in the world is directly or indirectly related to Genesis 3 and the fall. He says you have to begin there. So let's turn and look at Genesis chapter 3. I know that for many this will be a familiar account. But I think it it brings some clarity to what was happening when sin first entered the world. As I said, there had already been a rebellion. There had already been a deceiver. And he shows up in the garden. In this place of perfection. And he comes alongside Adam and Eve. And it says in verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals. That the Lord God had made. He said to the woman. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Let me just ask you. Is this technique something that is still used by the deceiver today? Is this same question still raised? Did God really say such and such? Did God really, did God really give this as his word or does it mean something else? You see, the, 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 the deception, the, uh, the tactic is very similar. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die serpent said to the woman in fact God knows that when you eat it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing God knowing good and evil the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom so she took some of its fruit and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it and the next verse verse 7 says that the eyes of both of them were opened There was immediately something that was affecting them. So to begin with, there was disobedience. There was a questioning of the authority of God's word. There was a desire to pursue something outside of what he had established. And because of that, we see that the aftermath was a curse. Look at verse 17. The middle part of verse 17 says, The ground is cursed because of you. So not only were their eyes open to the reality of sin, creation itself was changed. It says you will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. Since you were taken from it, you are dust and you will return to dust. So we go back to chapter 3 of Genesis and we see this incident that spawns all of the other issues related to suffering and evil in this world. In fact, sin, we are told, brought a curse. And this curse impacted the perfect relationship that Adam and Eve had had with God. It had some, some vertical implications, but it also had some quick horizontal implications. Because if we go into chapter 4, what do we see as part of the curse? We see the first murder. We see Cain and Abel, two brothers, fighting. We see one that, that goes against another and takes his life. And so we see the aftermath of the curse. Even as we go into the very next chapter. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, this nature, a sin nature, has been passed on to every person since that time. Let me just ask you this. How many of you who are parents or grandparents had to teach your child how to be bad? 
No, we have to teach them how to be good, right? Did, did any of us have to teach our, our children or our grandchildren how to lie? Anybody have to do that? Say, oh, this, this is really how... No, no, of course not, right? That we, we naturally understand these things because it's part of that nature. We don't have to teach them to, 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 to sin because it's, it's, it's natural. It comes, comes forth. It's part of the corruption that happened. But we also see that it's not just something that happened to the humans. It also happened to the creation itself. Let's look over at Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 20 to 23. It's a passage that's, that, that gives some clarity to what we have read in Genesis 3. This part of, of how the ground would be cursed and how difficult it would be. Well, Romans 8 in the New Testament points back to Genesis 3 and says it like this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Do you see the, the, the language there about decay? In some uh, versions, verse 20 uses the word curse again, just talking about this, this bondage of what has hap happened to the world that we live in. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. You see, we groan too because we know that something's not right. We groan when we see suffering, when we see illness, when we see death, because we know that we've been created in God's image. And God created us to live in a way that was free from this curse. He created us in a way where we're to have harmony with Him and harmony with one another. He created us in a way where provision was being made and it wasn't a result of of, uh, of, of working a cursed earth. We see that as we look through Romans chapter 8, it speaks not only of, the, of, 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 the, of humanity groaning, but also creation itself. It's as if it knows there is something else beyond what we're currently seeing. It really points back to the creation. It points back to the Garden of Eden. In the, in the time in which we did not have sin or sickness or death. But when Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation, when they disobeyed God, this curse began. And Romans 8 is describing the curse of sin as it continues to affect. We can see this curse in hunger and in poverty. We can see it in sickness and in death. We can see it in the natural disasters of this world. And as I said earlier, we can see it also in the expansion of demonic activity throughout history, but even today. It's important that we get the big picture, the big story of Scripture. And I've shared this picture with you before, one that I think helps. It, it, gives, it gives the grand picture of Scripture really with four words. It begins with creation, and it shows that God created a good earth. He created a perfect place for, for humanity. But then, very quickly, we see that the fall came. And that's what we've been reading about this morning. And so for us to get a theology of suffering, we have to have the big picture to see that, that yes, there was a good creation that, 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 was, that was given, but then 
sin and its curse has affected that creation. So very quickly from there, the promise of a redeemer, one who could restore, one who could make all things new again, would, would be coming. We sang that word today, Messiah. We were reminded of the power of the word. Even in the book of Genesis, they were beginning to look for this one who would restore and redeem. And then we see finally the, the, the final restoration will end there today in thinking about the new heaven and the new earth. So where are we living at? Right now we're living in the middle of that, of that picture. We've not gotten to heaven yet. We've not gotten to the point where we're experiencing the new heaven and the new earth. We're also certainly not living in the Garden of Eden, are we? Anybody else looking forward to raking leaves in the next week? Maybe you did so yesterday, right? I mean, we're, we have to till, we have to work. There's, there's things that, uh, that, uh, that, are, that are tough and hard. We're still living in the result of that. But we know that there's a day coming where it will all be restored. Let's think for a moment about the types of evil. I want to give you four this morning so that we can recognize the type of evil that, that, that flowed out of the curse of sin. It's important for us to see that, that there is a connection between them. We've talked about natural evil already, this, this external, physical type of evil. I, I've spent most of my time talking about like natural disasters and tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes. But we could also stop and think about viruses and illness and disease and sickness. All of that uh, wreaks havoc as well. That's part of the natural evil. There's another evil that we think of, and that's the moral evil. If natural evil is impersonal and outside of us, moral evil is personal. It's internal. It's the, it's the wickedness within. It's that Genesis 4 murder of brother on brother. That's the moral evil. This is what dominates the life in humanity. And when we, when we think about, about atrocities in this world, so oftentimes we can connect them to moral evil. I touched also on supernatural evil, the demonic uh, principalities of this world. Ephesians 6 says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, and rulers of this dark world, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. And so we have to also add that into the equation, that there, that there is a, another force out there that is at work to deceive, that is at work to tempt, that is at work to to, uh, to ultimately destroy. We know that the powers of, of demons are there to, to seduce and to deceive. So we want to recognize that that's another piece. But then there's also the eternal evil. And when I think of the fact that, that God is going to ultimately triumph over evil, we know that part of that is that He's placing evil in a place that the Bible calls hell. And so all of the evil of this world is really a very small picture of what it will look like in the place of hell. And so we know that that also is a reality. The good news is we don't have to go there. The good news is we can go to the place that God has prepared with a new heaven and a new earth. That's where the restoration happens. But we have to keep in mind that each of these evils sprang forth from Genesis chapter 3. That's where it was all unleashed. And so as we, as we try to develop a, an understanding of suffering, we have to see the connection to sin and the curse that it has brought. And to know that, 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 that we, all, we all experience that curse. Now, if you want to look at it from the positive side, 
There are blessings that God has put upon this earth that everyone gets to enjoy and benefit from. doesn't matter if someone is quote-unquote good or evil. They are blessings for the entire world. Well, the same principle is true when we think about the curse. Because we live on this earth and because we are, we are human, we're going we're gonna to struggle with these evils. Even whether we consider ourselves quote-unquote good or bad, it's still something that affects us all. We have to have that understanding. Well, I believe we've just begun to scratch the surface. I know there's still so many questions. Questions that, that, uh, that, that we may be asking ourselves about why God would allow evil. If we say that God's good and He didn't create it, why would He permit it? Or why wouldn't He stop it? Why wouldn't He, he bring the evil to an end right now? Well, I'm going to give you a fourth point for us to end on today, and that is this. We must remember the ultimate defeat of evil. The situation that we're in right now is not meant to be the situation that we live in. It's not meant to be the, the condition that we have for eternity. That's the good news. Yes, obviously the bad news is that sin is real. Its curse is real. We feel the effects. We see the effects. We weep with those who are weeping because we understand the reality of suffering and evil. But the good news is, is that that's not what we were created for, and that's not what God is preparing us for. In fact, you can take that trilemma that we looked at at the beginning, and you can turn it another way. Let me ask you a couple questions. Do you believe that if God is all good, that He will defeat evil? Do you believe that if God is all powerful, that He can defeat evil? And you say, well, yes, but evil is not yet defeated. But I think that the rest of that thinking is, well, God can defeat it, and one day He will. In fact, the Word of God gives us that as part of a gospel promise. And that's what we need. In the midst of this world of suffering is to hold on to the promises that God is not yet done. That He will be putting all things back as He initially intended. And we will one day be able to experience that. There's a book called Immortality, The Other Side of Death. And the authors Gary Habermas and J.P. Moreland, they, they encourage us as followers of Christ to take a perspective on suffering and evil that they call a top-down perspective. Rather than just taking a perspective of evil while we're in the midst of it and trying to sort through it with the, with the, uh, uh, with the circumstances of this world, they encourage us to, if we can, take a step back. Look to Scripture, look to the kingdom of God, and see if through those lenses we can see it differently. Here's what they write. The God of the universe invites us to view life and death from His eternal vantage point. And if we do, we will see how readily it can revolutionize our lives. Listen to what he says. Daily anxieties, emotional hurts, tragedies, our responsibilities, excuse me, our responses and responsibilities to others, possessions, wealth, and even physical pain and death. All of this and much more can be informed and influenced by the truths of heaven. The repeated witness of the New Testament is that believers should view all problems, indeed their entire existence, from what we call the top-down perspective. And here's how they define it. God and His kingdom first, 
followed by various aspects of our earthly existence. Now that's a lot. There's a, that's a big quote. I get that. But what he's saying is we take what it is that we're going through and we, we look to God's Word for promises. We look to God's Word for, for clarity. We, we, we seek to look at the things of this world in light of His kingdom and in light of eternity. Which again, I will tell you, the naturalistic worldview will never do that. But the biblical worldview... That, it, that, that comes along and embraces a theology of suffering, realizes first and foremost that yes, evil is real. Suffering is something that we will each experience to one degree or another. doesn't mean that all of our suffering is equal. I get that. But it means that it's something we will all have in common. But then the, the, the final question is, how do we see it in light of God's work in this world today, but also in light of what He is preparing? So I've said that he will ultimately defeat the evil. Let me give you just a couple of verses on that. In Revelation chapter 21, we get a picture of the new heaven and the new earth. And it's very interesting that as we read these verses, we feel like we're back in a garden. Do you think there's any, any, uh, any reason for that? Do you, do you see this idea of, of creation being recreated? Well, listen to what it's, is how it's described. Revelation 21.4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the pre previous things have passed away. Now, can I ask you, church family, do you look forward to that day? We long for it. And we're glad to know that that is true. And that it is promised for those who are in Christ. But I want to point out, we're not there yet. Those things have not passed away yet. We are still in the midst of working through the curse of sin. In fact, listen to how it's described in chapter 22. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. We get the, the picture of provision. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. Praise God, the curse will be over. No more sin. No more suffering. No more crying. No more illness. No more death. The curse will be over. And so we long for that day. We long for the day in which even the enemy himself... You know, he, he won't be in this location. He won't be there in the form of a serpent or anything else because Revelation chapter 20 tells us that the one who tempts and twists and breaks and devours will have no place in the eternal home. No place. So we look forward to that day. But can I tell you, friends, the cure for the curse is found only in Jesus Christ. He is the one who was the promised Messiah. He was the one who was the one that was said would come to, to restore and make all things new again. And that part of that can happen right now. Your life can be made new. You can have hope for this life and the life to come. You can be forgiven of the sins that, that have entangled, which by the way, each of us have been a part of and sometimes has been a cause for the struggles and suffering of this life. All of that can be forgiven. And all of that can be healed. But we can't do it on our own. You and I are not the cure for the curse. 
Christ is the cure for the curse. And that's why he says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Folks, there may be a lot of questions about God's activity and suffering and what He has, has uh, designed or what He has not pre- uh, prevented. And, and I, I know we can get caught up in all of that. But one thing is crystal clear. When God's people are suffering, He knows it. And He is with them. Psalm 147, a verse you might want to jot down. Verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And maybe, maybe today that's where you're at. Maybe you're coming through a season of brokenness. Maybe you're, you're feeling the effects of the curse of sin. You're reminded of all of that. And, and yes, we can look forward to that day which will come. We can look forward to, to, to heaven and all the glories that are there. But right now we're living on earth. And right now we need a rescuer who will come and provide the healing and provide the clarity, provide the wisdom so that we can continue on in this life. So this morning as we close, I want to ask if you have received the cure for the curse. I want to ask if you have come to Christ. I know that there are all kinds of objections and I know that there's all kinds of skeptics out there that will give those trilemmas and all those other kinds of arguments. But I want to encourage you to not fall. To not fall for those those ways of thinking. Look to the rock-solid truth of God's Word and find your assurance there. Find your solution in Christ. This morning as we go to the Lord in prayer, I'm going to ask the ushers to come to be ready to receive the offering. I'm going to ask our encouragement team if they'll make their way to the tables. And maybe today you're saying, Pastor, I'm I'm working through such a a difficult time right now. I need someone that can pray for me because I've had trouble even verbalizing prayers myself. Well, you'll look and you'll see that there's some folks heading to those tables. They're there waiting for you. And they would love to pray with you as you walk through the struggles of suffering and pain in this life. Or maybe you're here and you're saying, you know what, I, I'm beginning to see it. I'm beginning to see that what I'm missing is Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Restore. That's, that's what I need. And, and these individuals would love to talk with you about finding hope, finding restoration today in Christ. Maybe your suffering has brought you to a point where you see your need for Jesus and the hope that only He can provide. Let's bow and ask for God to apply His Word to us today. Heavenly Father, we know that You are a good, perfect, loving, and strong God. We know that You are a compassionate God who hears the cries of His people. So Father, we come asking for your tender mercies. We pray, Lord, for your peace and your grace that is needed in a day like today. And Father, I know that throughout this room there are many who are are working through their own season of suffering. God, I pray that, that you will be the healer. You will be the answer. You will be the comforter. God, we pray, Lord, for those that we know that are walking through struggles, walking through adversity, maybe even themselves the victims of evil. God, I pray for your your loving kindness 
in your presence to be made known. Father, we know that there's still questions that we may struggle with about suffering and evil, but one thing is sure, that you are a God who draws near. And you've told us that if we draw near to you, that you will draw near to us. So Father, in this moment, help us to do that. Give us the faith to lean on you, to trust in your good and perfect plan. Lord, may you be at work now in this time of response as we sing, as we pray, as we give gifts of worship. May you bless these tithes and offerings and use them for your purpose and glory. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our Messiah.